and welcome to this evening's Walkley Media Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. I'm Bridie Moran and I'm the Walkley Foundation's Partnerships and Communications Manager. I'd like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders past and present of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Tonight, we are presenting the latest in our series of public talks in partnership with the State Library. Independently funded, the Walkley Foundation's core mission is to foster excellence in journalism and to build and support a robust and independent media which deepens and enriches democracy. You've probably all heard about the Walkley Awards, which benchmark excellence, um, but along with our awards, we host events like the one we're having tonight, along with training programs, um, a whole variety of amazing industry and public events and produce the Walkley magazine. Events such as tonight are important for facilitating discussions about the media. I encourage you all to visit our website and join our mailing list for information about upcoming events. If you're a freelance journalist or one who is under 25 years old, we also have awards open right now just for you with great and special prizes up for grabs. We also have a brilliant opportunity for a bright university student to apply for the Jacoby Walkley Scholarship. Details about these current opportunities are on our website. We're also at the Walkley Foundation gearing up for the Press Freedom Australia Dinner. As you would all be aware, Australia's press freedom is under threat. And this event is our major fundraiser for the Media Safety and Solidarity Fund, which assists our colleagues in the Asia-Pacific region through times of emergency, war and hardship. At this event, Ross Coulthart will be our guest speaker and Sandra Sully will be MC. Check out the website listed on the PowerPoint and follow the hashtag 30 days for more details. Tonight, I also encourage you to get on Twitter, but make sure your phones are switched to silent during the discussion using the hashtag Walkleys and tagging at Walkleys and, if you like, Women in Media AUS. We have a great panel for you this evening and a very important topic. With International Women's Day fresh in our minds, we're exploring the role for women in the Australian media. How close are we to equality? What's the reality of working life for women in Australian newsrooms? And why do we need an organisation like the wonderful Women in Media, who you'll hear more about this evening and who we are co-hosting this event with? Tracy Spicer is a mentor from Women in Media and she'll chair this evening's discussion and tell you more about her panellists, Georgie Dent and Graham Russell, and if they're lucky and she's able to make it, Amy McGuire. For now, I'm going to jump off stage and hand over to Noreen Young, who will set the scene for the, tonight's discussion with some insights into gender balance in the Australian workplace. Noreen has worked in the employment sector for over 20 years and is one of Australia's most senior and respected employment diversity practitioners. She's spoken, published, commented and presented widely, both nationally and internationally, about issues relating to women's and diversity employment in Australia. She's appeared before all the relevant tribunals, I'm told, and the Productivity Commission. She's currently director at PricewaterhouseCoopers Indigenous Consulting, focusing on in employment issues and sits as a non-executive director on a number of boards. Please welcome Noreen. 
Um, thanks, Walkley's. Thanks, Women in Media, for asking me. I also want to acknowledge that we meet tonight in a very special place on the land of the Gadigal, one of the original um, places of meeting between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in this wonderful city of ours. I also want to acknowledge um, elders, past, present and future, my um, elders and ancestors who walk with me and thank the Gadigal um, for their custodianship of this magnificent place for us now all to share in. Um, as was indicated, I've worked in gender and diversity employment for a really long time and you will forgive me for that reason if I sound slightly grumpy. Um, I am constantly, I'm not working directly in it at the moment and in fact I'm, I'm consulting around um, our people, around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's um, entry in some places into the workforce. Of course, our people have always worked in, in building up this modern Australia um, alongside non-Aboriginal people, but that's what I do now. And I'm working around some of the historical injustices, but it's kind of a relief to be out of straight gender for a while. And when I was CEO of the Diversity Council Australia, I did get to work around all of the other issues, but really the pressing one for this country, given the notion, the, given the nature of the population, that 52% of our population are women, it is the pressing one. We, of course, have widened the gender pay gap over the last couple of years. Um, we had appalling results um, from the latest pregnancy discrimination inquiry that was not, in fact, an initiative of the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. It was ordered by the prime, the last, it was the last official thing that Julia Gillard did as Prime Minister. Because any of us who've been working in this area for longer than five seconds understand that pregnancy discrimination is really hot, it continues to be hot, continues to be hot with a bullet. Um, appalling results there. If you consider this a measure, the statistics um, around women on boards are still pathetic and women CEOs. There are more men called Peter and Michael, Peter and more men called Michael, who are CEOs of organisations in this country um, than there are women. I am 50 years old. I came of age at a time when the Sex Discrimination Act was introduced. I left school, when I left school at the end of 1982, it was, you know, the big flurry with the same things being said, as, there, as I said now, about affirmative action legislation that, you know, that will mean women can't be promoted on merit. I only want a job because of my merit. Um, blah, blah, blah. Same arguments that get trotted out now. And we thought the introduction of that act as young feminists was going to change everything. What I think we discounted was the incredibly embedded nature of sexist structures in this country and the way that the place developed 
and how it continues to develop and develop and how we don't think about what we're doing. Now, my job was to talk about this very quickly and then to introduce Tracy, and I think that those two things really segue into each other. I think we still have to keep working. Um, when, and, and I do have to offer a disclaimer, um, my, my partner is CEO of the Media Alliance, and when um, he was going back to the union after a period of 17 years away, I said, oh, for God's sake, you have to do something about the gender disparity in that industry and really start having a look at the awards because it always seemed to me as an, when I was an IR and diversity practitioner that there were some really glaring things that could be done around the structural discrimination. And he said, oh, well, yes, I am. Marcus and I are talking about having... Because that was big of him, you know, about having a, a women in media group. And I said, well, why don't you ask Tracy Spicer to convene it? And he said, oh, that's a really good idea. OK, well, I'll think about that. And then today I was looking at Tracy's bio and I thought, this is so interesting in terms of the big picture of all of this. Tracy said, when I graduated from a journalism degree in the 1980s, almost all of my classmates were women. Sadly, many of these women have gone missing because structural discrimination, um, because it's difficult to get back into the workforce after having children and a lack of career of clear career paths. So she's delighted to be a mentor for women in media. And I thought many of us who are activists have those light bulb type moments. And mine was I was a teacher originally and I worked in my union in the independent education union. So I came off the tools. And when I moved from that environment that I thought was bad and sexist to another into another union, that was my light bulb moment because I'd gone from a profession where it was completely normalised for women to work, work part-time, it was completely normalised for women to be out of the workforce for years and years and years and because of child-rearing and bearing and to be able to come in and still seek promotion. Now, I don't think that was any benevolent thing on the part of the, the employers, especially the Catholic ones. It was about necessity because it was a workforce and still is primarily made up for women. So the employers and the workforce culture grew around the reality of women's lives. Um, and interestingly, it's still still a major disparity but in terms of principals, in terms of CEOs in schools, um, in both the public and private systems. There's still a lot more male principals um, than there is female. So for all of that, the progressive nature, so it seems, of that industry. But that was really my one. When I left that industry and went to another industry, to another union, where I was the first female industrial officer, where um, people were still calling the office workers girl, although that did, of course, rear its head again this week, thanks to Bill Heffernan. Did anyone else hear that? I mean, I was outraged then, 20-some years ago, um, that the people who worked in the office were called the girls and girl, and there's Bill Heffernan this week saying I said something to someone's girl. So I thought, Trace, you must have had one of those light bulb moments at that time, and I think so often it happens to us when we get into the workforce. We think that things are fixed. We think that things are going to be like the girls' school we went to. I went to a public girls' school 
Um, I didn't really, you know, have much to do with men at work. I worked in an Indian shop and then I worked, you know, in my parents' swimming business. I didn't have much to do with big... And, and then I worked in, in the education sector. I didn't have a lot to do with big, large sectors where men ran it. And I think that's when you do get a shock. So I think that Tracy is the perfect person to convene women in media because... Um, since then, Tracy, you have just become... I met Tracy through the Ethnic Business Awards um, and I did suggest to the certain person that Tracy might be a good convener for the Women in Media group because she's articulate and forthright and determined and tenacious and insightful and tough and, unfortunately, these are the things you need to be in this game where you're constantly talking about inequity in workforce participation for women. People are bored by it. People are over it. People think it's tiresome. People think we're really boring feminists, blah, blah, blah. So you do have to be incredibly tenacious. And I think what Tracy's indicated to us as a community, the larger Australian community over the last five years, is that she's all of those things. And for that reason, I think she's a really perfect woman. And she she does that thing that I think all really decent feminists do, which is genuinely be lovely to other women and genuine, genuinely bring other women through. And to me, it's not about positions. It's not about what you've done at the UN. It's about what you actually do in your milieu and in your workplaces and how you behave. And Tracy is just tops. So I'm going to hand you over to Tracy Spicer. <laughs> Thank you, Noreen. Noreen is one of my favourite people. We've got a bit of a mutual admiration society going on here. Uh, on the panel tonight, we have the marvellous Dr Graham Russell, diversity expert, and the magnificent Georgie Dent, editor of Women's Agenda. I'd just like to start the panel discussion, though, by something that I Googled this afternoon. Uh, as Noreen said, when I went to university in the 80s, it was predominantly women. And I thought by now a lot of those women might have reached the top of their tree. When you look on your television screens and in your newspapers, you think there are a lot of women in the media. And there are. 55% of journalists are women. But we do dominate the lower paid, lower power roles. I'd just like to read out only the first names of the heads of the major media organisations in Australia. David, Mark, Tim, Hamish, Michael, Brian, Greg, Robert, Russell, Adam, Reese, Kathy, and David. So I guess my first question to the panel is, why? <laughs> Start with an easy question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'll have a go at it, but I suppose that doesn't surprise me and it's, it's the same kind of thing we see in uh, most organisations. We live in a patriarchal society. Um, as Noreen has said, I think there are a lot of structures that are against gender, gender equality. There are a lot of assumptions made. Uh, some of the explanations can be given in terms of the nature of work and I, I, I would uh, particularly like tonight at some point to delve into that a little bit more in terms of the assumptions we make about work and careers and I think that you know there is this kind of expectation that you'll go through work in this kind of a way and you'll get to the top and the people who get there have to have these same kinds of experiences and I think that that uh, does the way it's structured and the assumptions that people make 
leads at the way it is at the moment to fewer women getting into those positions. And for a lot of the men, if you ask the men in those positions, probably they'd give you a good legitimate explanation for it, that they've worked hard and that's the way you do it and the women haven't, or they might say they haven't got the ambition, right? Which is again an assumption that we that are often made, but I think that there is a lot of rationalisation of it at that level. Yeah. Georgia? Um, I think that it is, you know, interesting that in America they did that research recently and, and looked and there are more men called John running companies than there are women running companies. And someone in Australia, Conrad Liveris, did the same research um, for the ASX 300 and as Noreen said, there are more men called David running countries, um, running companies than there are women. Um, Michael and Peter are very close as well. Um, and it's just... I think it just reinforces in a different way how narrow the pool is that we that we take leaders from and that I think it just reflects the, you know, that our structures are set up for certain people and we know that if, you, if your name is Peter, you are more likely to be in that structure and to be favoured by the system. Of course, the individuals would never say that and that's, that's where this stuff is difficult because as Graham says, people will say, I worked really hard, you know, and I, I'm really clever and I'm really driven, so therefore I... Um, I deserve it and that might be the case but I also think you've got to look at the structures and the way that we judge merit and the way that we determine who's capable of leadership and I think those sorts of names reflect um, the narrow view we have of of leadership. Um, there was an interesting survey that Westpac did a couple of weeks ago of teenagers who were still assigning gender to roles. For example, a woman is more likely to be a housekeeper and a man is more likely to be an engineer. Uh, this unconscious bias, um, how deep-seated is it, Graham, and how difficult will it be to break down? I'm not a great fan of unconscious bias being the problem. Oh. Um, I suppose my feeling is, well, okay, what you're talking about there is a set of gender stereotypes mm. that are existing. And, I mean, I'm at the stage now where I've got grandchildren, so I, I was a, where to a male and female a, a grandson and granddaughter were at gymnastics the other day, and I suppose it wasn't hard to pick who was boy and girl in terms of how they were dressed and so on you know how the whole thing was framed so I'm very much aware of that and it's being re reproduced but I suppose in terms of um, and if I can just say at the moment and this might go to where you're going to go to later I've seen a lot of men who kind of sit there and say well I've done unconscious bias training and you know now I know that's it you know I've, I've now got it Right, unconscious bias. But what that does, in a way, is it absolves them of the responsibility. It's basically saying, what was unconscious? I had nothing to do with that, right? Whereas my view is that you've got a whole set of mindsets, attitudes and behaviours that sit behind this that we should really be tackling and having a go at. And I, I could pick out some organisations that have won awards for going through their organisation and giving everybody a dose of unconscious bias training. It hasn't made much difference. The evidence doesn't support it. So a, a dose of anything, whether it be unconscious bias training or whether it be some other kind of diversity training, the evidence just doesn't support the fact that that's the way change will occur. Yet I see so many organisations that are going to do that. Now, you might have a different view on unconscious bias, but uh, you've just 
pressed a button. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the sense of I think that it's, um, yeah, we need to tackle the issue in a different way. And I think it's absolving some of the responsibility. Sorry. No, that's fine. I think my comment would be that unconscious bias is in a way the starting point. Um, and I think that it's behaviours that stem from that that really need to change. And um, I saw Graham recently speak with Annabelle Crabb at a forum about her book, um, The Wife Drought. And in it, she sort of delves into the number, the hours of um, unpaid work that men and women in Australia do. And men, regardless of age or their employment status or their family status, basically in Australia, men over over the age of about 20 do 20 hours a week of unpaid labour and it's very fixed. If they get divorced, it goes up a little bit. Um, but for women, it's, it's really different. Most women do about 20 hours more a week of unpaid work and it's not just the childcare but it's the housekeeping, it's the caring for elderly relatives, it's the groceries, it's the admin. And I think that until that picture changes, the reality is... Um, even a CEO who does unconscious bias training, if he doesn't in his household sort of start looking at the way he and his wife divide the parenting, divide the housekeeping, divide all those jobs and actually create some change and then expect and anticipate that in his, in his team and then for that to flow on, you're not, no change is going to happen. You know, even if they recognise that, oh, I've got some unconscious biases, I make these assumptions about women and men, it's about actually changing behaviour. I'd really like to drill down on that because flexibility for men and women is such a huge issue. And on the caring issue, there was an interesting discussion on ABC this morning about in the UK they're giving caring credits to people because women are predominantly the carers in society. We end up with less superannuation, a third of the superannuation of men according to some surveys. So they're putting a price on caring, which is interesting. How do we bring more flexibility into the workplace Real flexibility for men and women, where men are not ashamed to ask for flexible hours. Redesign work. Challenge our assumptions about work. At the moment, we've got this concept of an ideal worker, ideal work, and we've got the concept of ideal households. And I think uh, we can't take a bunch of flexibility policies and impose them on a workplace and think that that's going to change a lot of things and I think that's the way that we've approached it. In the work that I do in organisations, the best opportunity you have to change views about flexibility is to firstly challenge work, challenge the mindset behind work because it is the case, I mean I've done the research and it's um, uh, well, 40% 40, 40 of uh, males in an organis a big organisation who had children under 12 said that they felt that accessing flexibility options would be seen as a, a sign of a lack of commitment in their organisation. Yet if you look at the other side of the research that we've done is that when you ask younger fathers what are some of the things that drive their motivation to go to a place or stay in a place, it's flexibility. So if you look at a kind of an emerging demographic that's there, you've got a, an extremely high interest in flexible work. Now, the thing about that is, and I think that we don't talk about this, a lot of those men will walk. They might necessarily make a fuss about it, but they will walk. They will go somewhere else. Um, the other thing that we need to do, and this is pick up on Georgie's point, and that is that 
I don't see a lot of there's, – there's a lot of discussion at the moment around men changing, right? And, and in the corporate area, there's a lot of that. But the point that Georgie was making, and that's about men in the household and so on, I don't see that at all. I mean, I was at a public um, gathering recently where somebody who's very senior gets a lot of publicity, won't mention the person, um, and was talking about, you know, how things are changing and I'm doing this and I'm doing that and all that kind of stuff. And somebody in the audience asked him a question about his own kind of life and about being a dad and that kind of stuff. Well, that question was just quickly ignored. So in other words, you know, what, what his life was like outside of that and how, he, you know, th things might be... Um, for him, he might have been a very highly involved dad. I have no idea. But it was just the fact that it wasn't seen as being an appropriate conversation to have there. And I think until men are having those conversations, as well as the conversations around gender equality in the workplace, if we don't have the conversation about gender equality at home, most of those men who are out there saying, well, I'm an advocate of gender equality at the workplace, are going home to a totally gendered household. Totally. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, well put. Yeah, look, I would agree. And I think Noreen was talking before about light bulb moments. And for me, having my first baby um, four and a half years ago was incredibly illuminating because my husband and I um, sort of just assumed because neither one of us was actually particularly well equipped to have a child. It just happened that that was happening. And at the time, um, my husband was actually studying, which meant he had an enormous degree of flexibility. So when we had our first baby, it was definitely a 50-50 project. Um, and when we moved back to Australia, um, he had to do a rotation that was out of Sydney. So for three months, he wasn't living in Sydney. And I was working four days a week here, so our daughter was in daycare. And for, for two of those months, I had just had her and Nick was coming back on the weekends. Um, and then, but for a week over Christmas, we had a bit of a childcare issue um, because the centre here was closing before I was on leave. Anyway, Nick discovered that there was actually a childcare centre in Wagga where he was doing his rotation. So he took her down there for a week. And the response, he works in a hospital and from the nurses to the other doctors to the radiographers, everyone, how long are you looking after her for? Well, you know, there's no contract. I haven't seen it. I think it's sort of a permanent arrangement. Um, and But where's the mother? You know, oh, well, I mean, she's smoking crack in the den. What, what else would she be doing? I mean, if a mother's not with her child. And it's just extraordinary because for two months, you know, not a single person had ever said to me when I said, by the way, my husband's away and I'm exhausted. No one said, but where's the father? And because we did come at parenting and look, frankly, neither one of us is better than the other. Occasionally, some of us, one of us might be more patient with the kids, but there is no difference in, in our ability to parent. But we are constantly amazed by this, you know, view. I, and I... A lot of people say to me, oh, you're so lucky because your husband's so hands-on. I think that's ridiculous. I'm not lucky. I'm just, you know, he, he's a father. We decided to have children together and that's what we'll do. Um, but it's it really is still this perception that somehow a father couldn't nurture as well or couldn't, I don't know. It's the Chrissy Swan discussion. How could you leave your children? You're no kind of mother. My husband hates it too when people ask him, oh, so you're babysitting the children tonight. He's like, they're actually my children. <laughs> I'm their father. It's not babysitting, it's parenting. 
Um, I'd like to narrow the discussion a bit more to talk about media because we've talked generally about structure in the workplace, flexible work, taking time off for caring. Uh, the gender pay gap is 18.8%. In our industry, it's higher. It's more than 19%. We've seen a lot of research that's been published on New Matilda that was done by academics in 2012. Um, tremendous research showing that women have fewer bylines, very few women are editors of newspapers, very few women are senior producers compared with the number of men. I'd just like to ask both of you, what is it specifically about the media? Is it the fact that it's traditionally been male-dominated? Well, look, I, w I would say, and I know every industry obviously has its own little quirks, but I think that in a lot of ways the media is is a replica of what happens in a lot of other industries and it's the same picture that there actually are a lot of female journalists but, as you say, in the senior roles, the bylines, the, you know, the I mean, even if you do, if you, anyone who's got a phone right now, if you go to the Australian website and look at their opinion page or the columnists, it is, it is literally just a sea of men and there's about two women um, and I think that the media isn't unique in that regard, but what we certainly struggle with the same structural problems that a lot of industries do, which is that we are not facilitating the the advancement of women into senior roles, and then I think that's what you see the reflection, and and it sort of perpetuates itself because you know there is so much research around that people do tend to promote people that are like themselves, and that's where intervening with things like unconscious bias training can be illuminating if people are willing to take the next step and actually do it but if there's not change at the senior level it's almost like change is, is it's not going to happen because it, the, the status quo will be perpetuated and I think that is that that's the problem in the media. Yeah I've, I've done a little bit of work in organisations that are in the media space and I suppose uh, I, this is hard to generalise from but I suppose I did come across some sharper gender stereotyping mm -hmm. in the media companies that I have worked with. Um, and I suppose part of that also goes to the nature of work and uh, I suppose um, audience, uh, money, you know, those kinds of things. Well, this was a commercial enterprise and I suppose it was more at the kind of hard end of masculinity and boys that, I, you know, I saw a little bit more of that in evidence than in some of the organisations that I w would have worked in that, you know, say in the um, finance industry or somewhere like that. But um, I would say a bit like Georgie that it, that it is a, a construction of the same kinds of issues that happen elsewhere. Yeah. I think that the other dimension that complicates it is that because the media does play a role in the messaging that we send to um you know that the mess that the public reads and consumes is that it, it again it, it perpetuates itself because um, you know one of the problems in the media and we've been covering this a lot because there are a few media organisations around the world that are tackling this. It is sort of getting women's voices into the media. So you know having female economists putting their view in, um, and so I think that is one of the dimensions that makes it problematic. Um, because it, it does have further influence. So I think that's, that's one of the motivations for why it, it needs to be addressed. I mean, in most industries it needs to be addressed, but I think in media there is sort of a powerful play, a powerful opportunity in symbolism 
and sort of what the tone that we set. And I think if we perpetuate this idea that um, of the you know the ideal worker, as Graham was saying, as a you know a white male of a certain age of a certain background. If we take that as the leader, then it just perpetuates itself. You've segued me beautifully into some of my more contentious questions. Uh, Bloomberg has just put in place uh, a quota for quotes, so every story must have at least one female talent quoted in it. The BBC's put in place a policy, no all-male panels. Is it time for targets and quotas when it comes to representation both within the media and with those whose voices we amplify? Uh, I'm a fan of targets. Uh, I, I think that uh, well-worked targets in any industry uh, is something that can change behaviours, but they have to be targets that are well thought out and have, have a good background to them. I think that a, a quota system is uh, something that has you know, more contentiousness about it. But uh, I think if you started to look at and do an analysis of you know, the media representation quotes and so on and then started to work back from that and say, well, how can we change that? One way of doing that is by uh, developing serious targets about it. So, yeah. And uh, I come back to evidence again. The evidence supports that. That'll change. Well, my position is that whether you want to call it a quota or a target, I think that without a concerted effort or without accountability, things won't change. I think that we've already seen that. And, you know, Noreen says that in 1982 she sort of thought this stuff was done. I speak to so many um, so many women from all sorts of industries, all sorts of positions that just think, you know, in the 70s they thought this was going to be resolved by the 80s and it just it just hasn't. And if you look at um, the World Economic Forum, they do a, an annual global gender gap report and according to that we'll have workplace gender equality in 2095. And to me, I just think that's too long, frankly, and I think that we need a mechanism to accelerate that process because, you know, 2005, not even my children will benefit from that. My children's children won't even benefit from that. And I just think, I think we sell ourselves short. Um, and that's why I think there actually needs to be a really serious conversation around, you know, if, you know, how, how do we actually create change? There's so much talk, the case for it is there and yet it's not happening. So... Communication theory is fascinating. Look at climate change. The best thing that happened in the climate change debate in the last five years was Barack Obama making those comments about the Great Barrier Reef. My children might not be able to come and see the Great Barrier Reef in years to come. To me, the conversation about gender equality has to go down that path where we talk about people's lives rather than facts and figures and we talk about the clear benefit to companies as well. It's all very well and good to get all bleeding heart about it, but I think we need to say, look, this change is good for everybody. I know both of you have done a lot of research in this area. I'd like to hear from you the benefits that will come from greater diversity. Well, look, one of the issues that I have been, and sorry to preempt you if you wanted to talk about this, but um, yesterday it was brought to my attention that the Financial Review is hosting a summit in, in April, at the end of April, um, and it's called the Banking and Wealth Summit, and it is about defining the future of financial services. And there were 10 keynote speakers on the image that was circulated, and 10 of them were men. And I just thought, you know, this is extraordinary. And I started digging into it. And on Monday, we actually published a story that did it really well, and it was about 
um, homelessness and women because homelessness is a huge problem, particularly for women, because over the course of their lifetime, instead of accumulating wealth, they're accumulating poverty as a result of all of the inequalities that are along the way. And I think if you look at these issues in isolation, it's really sort of tempting to say, oh, but, you know, if the husband's working and earning lots of money, why does she, you know, she doesn't need to work. But the reality is in so many households, for a lot of reasons, not everyone gets married, partners die, people get made redundant. There's all sorts of reasons. And not having the ability to earn an income makes you incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, I think that's the context that sometimes is missing from this. And so when I saw, you know, I had that in my mind and then I see this banking and finance um, event and I think well look you know what I can tell you what the future of banking and finance is going to look like on the basis of that lineup it's going to look identical to right now because if there aren't even women participating in that conversation about um, financial services then what hope have they got um, but I think that that picture needs we need to focus on the genuine um, problems that stem from inequality and it's not just as simple as oh well, I earn 18% less each week it's much more complicated than that and when you look at how that accumulates it's really important yeah, this is a troubling thing really because what we've done is we've kind of gone down this pathway to say there is a business case for women mm. right hasn't worked mm. probably won't work uh, I think there are a couple of things I'd say about this, and one is that I think this—if I was—if I was doing it from a business point of view, I'd say this is business critical, right? If you don't do it, then all these—there are all these risks associated with it because the business case usually is, well, you know what? If we get more women in here, we'll be more productive and we'll do this kind of stuff. So it's kind of putting that emphasis on women are adding value to the business rather than saying this is just so fundamental to our business and so critical. I'll give you an example. In a, a company that has won a lot of awards for doing this stuff really well, uh, gender, flexibility, diversity, a couple of years ago when I was working in this company, they lost their most senior female and she was in a major operational role. And uh, I interviewed another senior manager in there and the conversation went around, well, why did that happen? And he just looked at me and he said, well, let me just tell you what happened in here. When, when she resigned, what do you think we did? And I sat there and said, well, I'm not sure. And he kind of took a little bit of time and put a bit of space in the conversation, what he was trying to get across to me was nothing, right? We, we didn't do anything. We didn't try and figure out what happened or anything like that. He said, if that was a piece of machinery, we would have spent three days doing a root cause analysis of it, right? So that kind of thing, I, I think, we, we haven't got to that yet, you know, where it's seen as being what I'd consider to be business critical. The other point, which I think is a really important point, and that is the broader perspective of what gender equality means for our society. And I think that uh, I, I struggle a bit, a bit with businesses who kind of see this in a narrow term in terms of it's, it's going to affect our business. But if you take a broader thing, so and it's hard for me to get this concept across here, but 
there, there's an argument now, this is in academic areas, which is going, well, the business case hasn't worked. There is an economic case for gender equality, which takes a broader perspective. And I think that's the thing that Georgie was talking about there. And I think that that's where we need to go with this. But let me just give you another example, another story, which illustrates how, what a struggle this might be for a business. And I was using it in a particular context. So, Ask the question of a business, would your business knowingly pollute the environment? And the answer that, no, of course not, no, absolutely wouldn't do that. Would your business knowingly expose you to an occupational health and safety risk? Of course not, no, safety's number one priority here, number one priority. Would your organisation knowingly expose your staff to a relationship risk? And there's a blank on that and say, well, that's not our responsibility, right? So I suppose my point is that a lot of things that organisations do have massive ramifications for, our, for the community, for the well-being of people and so on. And we've got to the point now where we see pollution, we see the environment and we see all that, but what we're not looking at is the broader social part about that and the impact that it's, that it's having. I mean, I could cite evidence to you to, to show that um, children's well-being is massively affected by the nature of the work that their parents engage in and that has ramifications back through our, our economics and so on, um, our broader society. So anyway, that's it. I, I just wanted one thing I had meant to say earlier about the Banking and Finance Summit in particular and it touches on what you said, Graham, as well, that the business case doesn't seem to have any cut through and I think you know it's interesting that um, it was probably about a month ago now or even six weeks that Alan Kohler on the ABC News showed a graph um, some research from America and it was the S&P 500 the top yeah the S&P 500 average performance and then they had on top of that the performance of the female-led companies in that group and they they did consistently better and he said, it was only a really short segment on the news, but my phone pinged immediately from various relatives and friends who said, did you just see this? And he said, you know, I'd like to show you a graph for Australia, but there's, there aren't enough female-led companies to even have a sample size. And, you know, one of the things that I wrote yesterday about the lineup in this Banking and Finance Summit was that how can... And this is if you if even if you're just taking the really narrow financial view, how can these companies justify not even giving shareholders access to that potential you know there's evidence that female-led companies more diverse boards more diverse management groups perform better they make more money we know that and yet we still don't even have enough here to test it and I think that's quite interesting that obviously that that money is only persuasive in certain ways there's a huge disconnect and I'd like to bring it back to the media again because whenever I have these discussions, often with my husband, we debate on the couch about this stuff, he says, well, what about the magazines? They're aimed at women. There's a lot of women editors of magazines. I've always had women editors. I've spoken to women privately who are the top executives in Australia's women's magazines. They've gotten to a certain executive level, probably two-thirds of the way up. They're knocking on that door but they can't get in. One of the other discussions that's had at the moment is about new media. New media, social media, blog sites, predominantly run and populated by women. We are getting our voices out there. What worries me, though, is that it's an echo chamber. We're just talking to ourselves. What are your thoughts on that? Well, 
I think that one of the problems that we've got at this point in time, and I've been in this space for a long time, um, 40 odd years, and I've seen a lot of things happen over that period of time. And I think one of the problems that we've got to deal with at the moment is the essentialization of women. In the sense of what, what I what I see, and you know, I don't want to make a presumption that that's the argument that you that you were putting before about the fact that companies do better if women are on the boards. I mean, my explanation for that would be that they do better because they're better people, they're better skilled, right? I mean, that's that's the point that I would make about it, and I think that. One of the problems that we have at the moment is a lot of people are arguing, well, you know what? Women bring something different to the workplace. And the problem with that argument is that it goes down the pathway and you know what? They bring something different because they're into relationships. They're, you know, they're more collaborative. They're, they're, that's right. Well, they, they listen better and all that kind of stuff. So that what you then do is, so if you take, and I've experienced this in a media company that sounds just like what you've described there, that all of the magazines, the women's are there, and, and when you talk to the women, they can't go into that next part, uh, you can't go above that, and a lot of them leave because of that. And I would su suggest that part of that explanation is, well, that's where they should be, really, you know? And it's because that's a mindset that people have about, women you know and in, in that kind of media environment so so I, I think that's a bit of a dilemma that we have in terms of the way a lot of these arguments are put within organizations because I, I come across it all the time where people say well we've got to have more women because they're better listeners and you know that they, they pay more attention to detail um, uh, they're better behaved. I mean, that goes back to some of Ann Summers stuff, you know, damned whores and God's police. Anyway. Exactly. Look, the, the echo chamber is something that I think about daily because I edit a website. We publish content daily. I don't actually edit every single day, though. I work four days a week, so on Tuesdays I don't think about it. But... Um, every other day I do think that because I'm writing the same things and I know that I'm writing it, you know, our readers know this stuff, I'm preaching to the converted. But slowly, but, sh you know, it, and the thing is, I have to say today is one of the first times I've actually legitimately felt like somebody has heard and paid attention because after making, um, you know, quite a big statement about this financial review summit, the editor-in-chief actually wrote a long response and when I got an email saying that, you know, Michael Stutchbury, the editor-in-chief, will send a response, I actually felt a little bit terrified for about 10 minutes because I just thought, I think he's going to get angry at me. Um, because last year they published a few columns by Mark Latham that I wasn't alone in taking issue with, but they were... Um, repugnant. They were repugnant. Yeah, I mean, they just were. They were appalling. And I tried and I tried and I tried and I couldn't get a response from them. And, and quite a few of the women who were targeted in the emails also couldn't get a response, certainly not a response that felt respectful, that they felt that they were being respected or listened to. So I was, look, a little bit nervous that I was going to get blasted in an email. Um, but to my surprise, I got a response that was actually quite thoughtful and considered and admitted that there was a big problem with there being 10 keynote speakers and zero women. There, there are some women in the pro program, though. There are, there are 37 people speaking and 10 of them 
are women. Two of them are journalists, so they're not banking and finance executives. But anyway, they have now changed the major image so that there are five women on that picture to go with the ten men. And that is a very, very small... Thank you. Well done. It's the tiniest, tiniest victory. But actually, to me, it felt significant because I thought, you know what, actually, I can keep writing about this every single day because slowly, if you don't take... you, If I don't take my foot off the pressure then someone has, something has to give. And maybe the echo chamber isn't just an echo chamber. I agree with you entirely. I was talking to an environmental activist yesterday who was asked two weeks ago in these words to be, quote, the token woman on an environmental panel. And she said, no, I will not. I know it's important to get women's voices out there in the environmental movement. You look at the top level, they're all men. But she said, I'll be on the panel as long as there's an equal amount of men and women on that panel. And sure enough, they invited more women. So I think that activism is very, very powerful and we have to be on top of it every day. Equally, I think it's important for men to come along and listen to discussions like this, as well as more women to be on panels. What are your thoughts, and I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this because I'm torn on it, on the male champions of change. Are they making change? Mm. It's a hospital pass. It is a hospital pass. Well, let me just go to the evidence. The evidence shows that um, change in any organisation is not all that effective when it's led by a kind of heroic leader at the top. So that's one thing. Yeah. Um, I suppose I, I, I've find the male challenge of change as being a kind of a patriarchal kind of a approach to things where you've got a group of very senior people with power who are, you know, kind of being generous in a way to, you know, a, 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 a apply themselves to these issues and try to change their organisations. Uh, I don't think in the long run it will be an effective model. I don't have the evidence to support that in terms of this particular initiative. But just as a, a thing to um, look at and pass comment on, uh, I'm not somebody who would favour that. I mean, a I, I thing that I've said for a long time is that I see in organisations as what I call patronising partnerships. And they are ones where, and I just saw this the other day on International Women's Day in an organisation that I was involved in, where you know all of their diversity or gender equality councils are headed by very senior males, right? And, uh, you know, then, then you've got women, if you know what I mean. You know, you get the get the image. And so when you go and see those groups as well, when you see, well, we're, we're serious about this stuff, and then you go and talk to the group and you look around and you see, well, yeah, a lot of senior men here and there's a diversity of women, but there's not a diversity of men, mm. right? And, I mean, I think that's the other point that's, that's missing here is that some of these conversations aren't happening across the entire organisation. And, uh, you know, I, I just... Uh, struggle to see how that will be an effective long-term process of change and particularly given what the conversation that we had before which was about changing what happens outside of the workplace as well unless that group becomes public around that like I haven't seen any organization yet who's been is male champions of change included in this who's serious about gender equality wow. there you go but you want to ask me what I mean by gender equality. There you go. Well, 
Look, I think that the male champions of change, it is problematic in some ways because, as Graham said, it does reinforce in a way the, a patriarchal system. Uh, I think that I, I, I do agree with the rationale behind it and I think that it is, if, if we are going to affect change, that men need to be a part of that change, absolutely. Uh, just recently, about a month ago, we, I, we published the first report card um, that the male champions have changed. That was their latest report, and it, you know, and there were red crosses on certain um, indexes that you know that they hadn't that some of them weren't actually performing. And one argument is that you know Elizabeth Broderick has done quite an extraordinary job to get them to a point where they would disclose that sort of stuff because it you know no one likes doing that. No one likes putting their hand up and saying actually we're not doing a great job here. And so in that regard, I think obviously she's she's doing a terrific job. But I also think when you look at it and you think these people are incredibly powerful, if they wanted to instigate and, and implement genuine change, then I feel like in the three years there could be more green ticks on those boxes than, than, than there were red crosses. I was going to say, I, I agree with that. I think that is one of the most positive outcomes of this process is that it's going to make all of those processes transparent. And I think the fact that those organisations have agreed to do that is a positive, particularly given that uh, the, you know, there's the kind of rolling back of the requirements for reporting through the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. So that I, I do see that as being a positive thing. I agree. Let's pick transparency apart for a second. We've talked a lot about the problems. We've talked a lot about what's not right. Let's talk about what we can do. How do we get past this gender pay gap? And I know that it's a complex thing because women are less likely to ask for pay rises. They're viewed as bossy if they ask for pay rises. There's not a lot of transparency. Where do we go with that? Look, the, the issue is the pay gap in itself, yes, is a complex problem, but tackling it isn't if if an organization the first step is actually doing a payroll analysis because the the starting point for so many people and I mean Helen Conway who's just um stepped down as heading up the workplace gender equality agency you know she has torn her hair out over this because you can't say we don't have a pay gap in our organisation if you haven't done the analysis. And a lot of the information that the you know that Wigia collects because they're the reporting body is confidential. So she can't come out and she would never say who hasn't done it. But you also get the impression there are very few companies that have actually done a pay gap analysis. And unless you do that pay gap analysis, you're never going to actually tackle it because you know, there are lots of people in Australia who are qualified, I'm not one of them, but who, who can go through, come into your organisation, help you figure out, okay, do we have a pay gap? Why is that pay gap happening? Let's amend it. And, and that's, you know, taking action is not that complicated and it will solve a complex problem. I agree completely. I do pay equity analyses for organisations and uh, it, it's something that you can do and you get transparency on and critically you can build in processes where you kind of make the checking live, you know, like as you're doing it rather than coming back and doing it six months later. You can get all that, those processes in place. One of the things that I find um, a, a challenge there is that 
many organisations want to do this or agree to do it um, but then don't have the courage to follow through with it or to have the open debate about it. And I suppose that's the thing that surprised me and a number of organisations where I've done this has just been a total lack of curiosity about, well, why could that happen? And uh, so many situations where you get challenged on the data. Uh, I mean, I've been challenged many times. I, you know, one time, well, where did you get this data from? I, this, I don't understand this data. I got it from the IT section, right? You know, you, you gave it to me. I've done nothing more with it. Uh, so, you know, that that is a, um, a, a problem in itself. But the other thing, just one other thing that I've learned in doing this is that um, I, I do what's called a career path analysis. So you take a couple of jobs, you know, job job paths, and, and you do a really good analysis of that. And then you're looking not only at kind of the uh, average pay that somebody might have at a level, but you're also looking at how long they're at that level for and, you know, what the movement is. And so you're getting some of the other nuances in there rather than just doing a kind of an average across different levels in an organisation. The organisations that do it well, fantastic, they change things and they're very happy about it. I think the other thing that I find quite extraordinary about the pay gap is how often people argue, you know, that it's it's just because women choose different roles. I mean, and I think... Gosh, isn't that an extraordinary coincidence? Women just, they don't like money. They, ov they obviously don't like money. <laughs> they want the poor paying roles. Why wouldn't they? And yet we have the data. And, I mean, this is the other scary thing about the, um, about the pay gap is that in the organisations that are big enough that they have to report to Widgia, the pay gap in that group is actually 25%. And if you, if you dig further down, I mean, the pay gap is as high as 45% in management. And so, I mean, 18.8% is, is actually an av is, is sort of a conservative estimate. And what I think is curious about that is that the companies that are big enough that have to report to Widgear, there you would assume are the sort of slightly more sophisticated employers and yet the gap there is significant. And I think it... It seems odd to me, well, it doesn't seem odd to me, frankly. It just seems predictable that the data is there and yet we're still told, oh, it doesn't really exist. Have you done any analysis? No, I don't need to. Oh, extraordinary. You don't need to. And yet all the data shows that there is a legitimate problem, but not for you. Okay, terrific. I think someone else should be running the company. <laughs> so we need transparency. We need to look at pay scales. We need to do proper audits about that. We need to look at the value of women's work compared with men's work. And if you look at our industry, traditionally women have done a lot of the health reporting. Men have traditionally done a lot of the political reporting. Guess what? The political reporting's paid more. We've got to look at really basic things like that. We've also got to look at mentoring and sponsorship. How valuable is that if it's done well? Yeah. Do you want to answer that? I mean, I, I have a different view about that probably. Oh, well, I'll express it. The evidence doesn't support mentoring and sponsorship as, as being the pathway uh, to... Um, uh, the reason why I can make these evidence-based statements is I did do an analysis for Wajir on what the evidence base is for gender equality outcomes. And so one factor that didn't come up was mentoring. And I suppose if you take sponsoring, the, the problem uh, that I have with that is that that's replicating a 
kind of a, a mail system that's been around for a while in the sense that you're sponsoring somebody and giving them an opportunity and you're not going through some kind of selection process. And i just give you an example of a, a very senior male recently uh, who I was talking to and uh, we were talking about how we, we might build some strategy around um, a, a training program to do with recruiting people or promoting people. And he said, oh, no, that's not something at people my level that have anything to do with really... Uh, it's something you should probably train train HR on or you know something like that, but not not me. You know, so uh, well, I love asking people this question, uh, very senior people. I can say, well, how'd you get your job? Well, I worked with Fred and Harry, and we were on the same thing together, and. Uh, I went out here and down there somewhere and, you know, I saw him at this social thing and then what happened after that was this job came up and he said, you know, I, th I think this might be something that you can do and so here I am. And I said, well, wh what do you think the skills were that he was impressed with for this job for you? Well, I don't really know. Anyway. <laughs> Look, I think it, it is interesting that um, – and I have – read that before that in a sort of formal evidence setting mentoring and sponsorship isn't going to be a game changer I think on an individual level where it it can be extremely valuable and I say this um you know from a personal level because since when I since returning to work after having kids up my two bosses have been um working mothers who have small children and it has made an enormous difference to me and I would count both of them as mentors um, because the starting point with both of them has always been that it's completely, there's no questions that you won't do a good job and that you're capable of doing this. Yep, there are going to be weeks where logistically it might look a bit differently and I have I have flexibility in how I work. Um, but I have never, ever had to waste you know a, an hour ever worrying that maybe I'm being perceived to, as you know not committed or something because I'd have to leave the office at five o'clock on the days that I have to pick up the kids. And things like that. And I think that, you know, it's that old thing that you can't be what you can't see. And I think that that's where mentors and sponsors or just having people that you can work with who fill you with that sort of confidence that this is absolutely possible and this is what I'll have to do. So that was that's what I would say that in that sense mentoring is really valuable in sort of reassuring um, men and women that, that it's possible to have a working life that mirrors what they want. I'd have to say I would concur from a, only from a personal experience in that sharing ideas with other people who have similar challenges is really powerful. I just want to ask one more question then we'll throw it open to if anyone in the audience wants to ask a question. Just briefly, you touched on networking before, the old school tie. How powerful could it be if women had networks as powerful as the men's networks? Well, net networking uh, in organisations... I've done analyses in organisations around networks and they are extremely powerful with regard to who gets on in an organisation. And I think um, having that kind of access to that networking... Because, well, I think that the, the one reservation I'd have about mentoring uh, would be that it depends upon the type of mentoring that's done because there are different kinds of mentoring that are done. Some is quite helpful, but broadly it's it's not. But establishing networks, and I suppose the other thing about it is making visible within organisations what those networks are that have an impact, I think is extremely important. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, it's interesting. We So Women's Agenda, we host some leadership awards each year. And Women's Agenda is it's nearly – it'll be three years old in August. But we're quite a small company, but it's um, – you know, we think that we're doing a good job. But the leadership awards we have, um, they were really, they came about because we wanted to showcase a new generation of, of female leaders because, you know, we know that in the media women don't get as much coverage. You know, they, they don't, they don't. So, um, and being having been a part of that for two years, it actually is incredibly powerful because we have um, awards from in the not-for-profit sector, emerging entrepreneurs, corporate leaders across the gamut. And when the finalists get together and we have created an alumni program so that we can have lunches and things like that with these women. And part of it is to give them a network. And the at the event that we had at the end of February, I mean, it was just extraordinary to meet all these women, to have them in a small room together. The night before the awards, we have a cocktail party where it's just the finalists. And you can see the connection starting. And I think... That stuff is incredibly powerful, even if it's, it, I mean, they may not need anything from each other in the next three months, but I think long-term, if you sort of establish those, recreate the old boys network, but in a new fashion, um, and you give people, other people that they can rely upon or call upon or think of in the future, you know, I think that's actually valuable. I agree entirely. Um, would you like to ask any questions of our wonderful panellists? Yes. Um, I think things have changed. I think what happened to you when you were on maternity leave at Channel 10 wouldn't happen these days. There's a lot of women at Channel 9 that have had babies and have come back into the same or, or better roles. Um, but I'm interested in your view, Graham, on how to get um, what we're talking about in terms of the echo chamber trickled down a little bit more because I go to a lot of these events and they're full of women. You're here today, but you're here on the diversity council representing them and the men that I can see in the audience I don't think are in the workforce. So how are we getting, and oh one more thing I wanted to say, when I left my job as a finance reporter most of my um, followers on Twitter I think were men because men are interested in the stock market, you know that's men's business. Because women don't like money, yeah, men, remember? Women don't like money. <laughs> now that I write for Women's Agenda and I mainly tweet about women's issues as one of my followers told me, so apparently equality is a women's issue, I find that I lose followers. You know, I went to All About Women and I lost probably a hundred followers from tweeting about women's issues that day. So how do we get the trickle down effect to get yeah. the men interested in this and to actually, you know, believe that what we're doing is important and that we do need women's voices in the workplace rather than this just being like a chit-chat that we're all having and patting each other on the back. Well, the first thing I should make clear, I, I, I'm not somebody from the Diversity Council of Australia. I mean, I, I do work for them, but I'm, I just want to didn't want to claim that I was. That's a, that's a, oh, does it say that? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Maybe they hired you and you didn't know. Oh, no, no, no. I do, I do consult to the Diversity Council. That's true. But I, I, I'm not an employee of the Diversity Council Australia. Uh, th that is just a, such a fundamental point with regard to the conversations that we're having at this point in time. Uh, you know, the broad group of men are not engaged and don't have a forum. 
within you know within the workplace if i just use the workplace as an example don't have a forum it's not that men aren't interested in having a discussion because they're obviously having this discussion in their private lives and what we need to do is to engage them more broadly in an organization um, so what i talked about before when i go to these events in organizations i don't see the broad cross-section of men because they feel you know it's not for them or i i, I don't know but there's not not the part of it. I, I think that what we have to start to do is to form partnerships and, and look at these issues uh, across different levels in organisations and have those conversations. I mean, there are lots of organisations now you talk about, well, we've got gender fatigue. You know, we've, we've been talking about this for so long and don't want to talk about it anymore. But that, that's not the case. I mean, when, when you do get people engaged in this topic and start to look at it as, as something that, you know, there's an outcome that can impact the organisation, women and men, it changes it. I ran a program called Men at Work, for example. We don't have any problems in getting men, when, when they come along to it, to engage in conversations around this, but very few organisations are interested in that kind of stuff because, again, sometimes it's seen as not being politically correct to engage men because, you know, men are in a privileged position and have, you know, all of the, the resources and power and so on. But if you're going to shift that dynamic in an organisation, you have to have a different conversation with men. So I agree. Um, I don't have the solution to it, but I mean, I, th I think it's going to be a great organisation that sees that and sees as an opportunity to really do something about gender equality. So I agree 100% with what you said. Um, I worked in a affirmative action in the 80s. And actually, I get very depressed because um, I, we have a gender equity agency now. Um, I found this the only industry advisor in Australia that I had to use a lot of humour when I was dealing with senior male managers because I'd go into a training session and they'd all be sitting with their arms crossed. Body language said it all. So I used to start with lots of cartoons. And when I got them sort of to a point where they were beginning to relax, then you could actually start talking about things. And you're very right, you do actually have to have very good statistics to profile the organisation. And in, even in an industry like the cosmetic industry, which has 95% women in the workforce, 5% will be at management level. But one of the things that was a glaring situation for me, and it, probably relates maybe to some media reportage rather than to actually working in the media. I rang one company and I said, why is it that you have absolutely no women in this company, not even in the office, which is usually, you know, where you will find them? And uh, the fellow said to me, oh, we couldn't have women in this organisation. Uh, we use cadmium processing. And I said, right, can you tell me a little bit more about that? He said, Rex the livers and kidneys. And I said, so don't men have livers and kidneys? <laughs> so, you know, there are so... And what you were saying before, there are so many levels of concealment. Mm. And I think men are as much the victims of this because obviously this man, as a manager in an organisation dealing with pretty serious chemicals, thought that the men working there were somehow dispensable, but had this peculiar view 
that they couldn't have women working there because they didn't really want to damage the women. So, you know, there are some really interesting things that get thrown up when you actually deal with this on a one-to-one -one organisational basis. I think women as fragile creatures is something that's echoed throughout a lot of industries. I remember many conversations hearing bosses over the years saying to women who wanted to go and work in war zones as conflict journalists, oh, but you couldn't, you're a mother, what if something happened to your children? And yet they'd, then they'd send a bloke who is also a father. Yeah, I think actually that's something we didn't touch on, but it was that I had thought about in the lead up to tonight, was that... <sighs> one of the other issues with the media is, and we see this every time, you know, a female is appointed CEO or promoted, if she has children, you know, the fact that she's a mother of three or a mother of five, if it's not in the headline, it'll be in the first paragraph. And yet, and it's the same with childcare, you know, mums can't go to work because it's cost this. Why is childcare the mother's expense? It's actually a parent's expense. But I think these little things that you see, and obviously, you know, if you've got this, Someone actually said at the All About Women Festival, you know, one, it's really impossible to unsee gender equality once you've seen it. And as someone who writes in this space all the time, I just, I'm struck by it every single day, the entrenched sexism. And it's not always, I mean, some of it, yes, comes from a, a bad place. I don't doubt that. But a lot of it is just so casual. It's just, oh, mother of three runs a company. Oh, mums can't go to work because childcare costs this. And it's just, they're the sort of assumptions that, and the media there has a powerful role because we need to change that idea that women are fragile, the men are dispensable, that women are mothers first and foremost and um, because I think that just holds us back and I think it is a legitimate impediment to progress. My name's Vanessa Lyle and I run a public relations agency and also a mentor with women in media. Georgia, I was really interested in your stories um, around sharing parenting with your husband and some of the comments around that. Um, I, I suppose I'm interested, um, and it is a personal question, but one of the restrictions for progression in my career when I had my third child was um, my husband's workplace refused to enable him to go part-time. Um, our preference was that we both go part-time um, to enable us to share the care of our six-month-old baby and other two children at the time. Um, during the period that I had a significant career opportunity, now I had to forgo that opportunity because um, that he was refused the option of going part-time and um, it wasn't feasible, nor did we want to leave our, our um, child with both of us in full-time work. I'm interested in your perspective of, of those circumstances because it feels like in some ways we're, we're trying to fight our own battle for flexibility as well as trying to address the, the challenges our husbands have in, in trying to, to gain flexibility to support us. Yeah, and look, it makes me it makes me so sad and angry when I hear a story like that. Um, but it also reminds me of um, one of a woman that I know who her her husband is a lawyer. She's a journalist. She's an editor actually. And she, when they um, were planning to have their first child, they had looked at both employment policies and they had decided she was going to take six months um, parental leave first, and then he was going to take three months um, parental leave and then they would be able to find childcare after that. And so, you know, three months pregnant, he, her husband went to speak to the law firm um, and they said, oh, no, one, no one's ever actually used that policy. You know, no father 
has, that would be the worst thing you could do for your career. And so in the end, you know, he didn't take extended parental leave. And it is tricky there because you think, you know, in some ways you want you want someone to stand up and say, actually, no, I'm going to take that policy. But then at the same time, you know what it's like in a household. You're about to have a baby. Can you afford to make yourself vulnerable and lose your job? And if you've, if you've worked that hard, where do you have to... But then the other reason it makes me so cross is because it just sets up a dynamic. Because this is something I feel really strongly about. And it comes, you know, the only way you get good at looking after a baby or a child is by looking after a baby or a child. And so denying a father a decent chunk of parental leave in the first 12 months of the life, it means that you set up the dynamic so that, you know, the mother is the caregiver and that the father isn't. Because kids, babies are scary. They're scary even if you're looking after it all the time. But if you're not looking after it all the time, then it becomes... Anyway, to me, it just perpetuates that idea. And then you've got another workplace that's being set up around the fact that fathers don't take time off. They've got no visible caring responsibilities and everyone loses. Um, Sarah, journalism student, Maclay. Um, I was just wondering what you would say to women who probably are a bit lackadaisical these days, thinking we don't need feminism or women and or men thinking feminism is a dirty word these days. What would you say to them and how would you approach this? What are your thoughts? Anyone? Look, I would say that I understand that, but I think that it is... It's, I I don't want to say it's frustrating because I do understand it. And, you know, actually at the All About Women Festival um, recently at the Opera House, Anita um, Sarkeesian, the sort of woman who was at the centre of the Gamergate situation, she was saying that, you know, there is a chilling effect to her sort of standing up and saying, you know, she's she's been fighting sexism um, in video games. And by speaking out about that and identifying herself as a feminist, she has been targeted. I mean, she's had death threats. She's had the whole bit, significant abuse. And she says, you know, other people see that and they think, I don't want that. And she thinks, I don't want them to have that. So on the one hand, I I want people to identify with feminism as a positive um, movement because that's what I genuinely believe it is. I don't think that feminism isn't about hating men, it's about wanting equality and it's about hating inequality and thinking that it's not it's not the, the answer. Um, but I also think the reality is when you do speak up and you do speak out, you do make yourself a target in some ways and you have to be prepared for that and that's where you sort of have to wake up every day and just think, yep, I believe this a lot. I'll probably get abused on Twitter but it's what I believe and I'm going to, I'm going to say it. When you look at a company or a country where women have achieved leadership roles, what do we learn about how that happened? Well, I suppose um, in terms of the companies that I've worked with, uh, it takes a couple of things and one is the will of the company to focus more on merit and I know that's a dirty word in terms of what's going on but in terms of the best person for the job so that's one thing getting your selection processes in place but the other thing that does make a difference in organisations is to have some flexibility in careers so what you've got is an organisation that will allow people to go from one area to another area in a company because what often happens is that women 
in bigger companies are more likely to be in those support roles, right? Just in terms of the the um, qualifications and experience where they entry uh, enter into a company, and where you get promotion to the bigger jobs, the leadership jobs, comes more through an operational pathway. So where I've seen this work effectively is that they've had a lot of crossover in terms of careers going from, you know, taking somebody who may be in a, um, say, well, I can give you a couple of examples, uh, where I know a, a person who was in a legal role finished up as the CEO of the company by going and, and engaging in other jobs uh, across operational parts of it. Somebody who was a, 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 an environmentalist, same kind of thing. Somebody who was a HR person, same kind of thing. So unless you change some of those structures internally, you're not going to get any of that to happen, right? So that, that would be the biggest thing that I would, I would say um, that's had an impact. And then uh, behind that has, has sat some very strong-willed organisations in terms of accountability. I think you made that point before. Accountability and, and uh, responsibility for doing this. So managers having accountability in terms of delivering something that's different in an organisation. Yeah. Is there a country that stands out for, for achieving women, uh, women's leadership roles? Do, you think, do we look somewhere specific? Well, it's, actually, it's interesting. Iceland is actually the closest to gender equality in the world. And actually it was interesting. There was a piece that was doing the rounds around International Women's Day that I think it was October 24th, 1974, the date might be wrong, but 90% of women in Iceland walked off their jobs and out of their homes as a protest and they wanted gender equality. But within 12 months, they had um, legislated for equal pay. Six months after that, they had, the I think, the first female, world, um, female president in the world. And now, you know, they are the, the, the country that's closest to gender parity. And I think if you look at all of the Nordic countries it's a similar picture in that they have implemented infrastructure like childcare, mandated parental leave all those things and they haven't done it in the last 30 seconds they they did it 25 years ago and but it means that those changes actually re-engineered some of the other structures that fell from that because companies were set up for the fact that you know, there was an expectation, particularly in Norway, when they mandated that some of the paid parental leave it would only be paid if it went to the father. So actually fathers took it because there was no point in foregoing it. So then it creates workplaces stem from that where it's sort of you've made the cultural shift already because it's being facilitated. Maybe we'll have to walk out or chain ourselves to something. We've got one time for one more question. I know you've been waiting for a while. Sorry. Oh, hi, it's Caroline. Um, I do have experience in the area. I worked in the Affirmative Action Agency as Director of Communications many years ago. I think I've edited a lot of your papers, Graeme, for making the link. Um, just a comment um, and an anecdote. So the anecdote first. I think it was the Shareholders Association that recently came out and said the most amazing thing, which is that we're looking at these companies with no women on the board and we're wondering what else are they doing so wrong that they can't, and we don't tolerate this excuse or we can't find anybody good enough. That is total rubbish. And um, so I thought that was a you know, great line and anecdote. The other thing is thinking about male champions of change. 
What a name. Male champions of change. But apart from that, I wonder if it's um, not very good to criticise them. Um, from my point of view, just hearing them, you know, come out and talk, it just seems like it is a really good thing. In the old days, it was like, if only we could get the captains of industry to get into this conversation with us. They're here. And so it sort of hurt me a little bit to hear anybody want to tear that down. Because obviously a lot of things have been tried and they don't work. So who's to say that what they're doing is going to work? Not very much has. But at least we need a multiplicity of things going on. And I do feel that happening. And great on Bloomberg. Isn't that amazing? I know. Isn't it wonderful? I work for them too. Um, thank, thank you, you so that. much for your yeah. comment. And I just want to say briefly about male champions of change. We all think it's a, a tremendous initiative. We just hope they walk the walk as well as get the front page of The Australian once a year. Um, thank you so much for coming along. Would you please thank Georgie Dent and Dr Graham Russell. I'd also like to take this opportunity to give a brief plug for Women in Media. Our next networking event, networking being so powerful, is on March 31. Please get onto our website, womeninmedia.net. It's about crisis and survival, how to sustain a career in news. We've got some tremendous speakers, Fiona Harari, we've got Philippa MacDonald, we've got Janet Fife Yeomans. We've got some amazing women speaking on our panel, so please come along and thanks for coming tonight. And thank you to Tracy for being such a wonderful moderator of our conversation. <laughs> thank you everyone for coming along to Walkley Media Talks this Thursday. We have these events monthly at the State Library, so please stay tuned to this event and to all the other events that Women in Media are hosting. And thanks again to our panel. Thank you. Thank you.